You've lived in this quaint little house for a little bit. It was gifted to you by your parents. It was gifted to them by their parents, and so on and so far, as, as far back as your family member goes. You, you can't really figure out when's the first family member to actually live in this house. It's been in your generations for, forever. This home has, has gotten quite old and rickety. So when you walk on the doors, you open up, you walk on the floors, you open up the doors, everything kind of creaks a little bit in every movement. And the house, it starts quaking with every gust of wind. You're like, I don't, I'm not sure this house is going to last that much longer. Your family, though, is outgrowing this space, as I'm sure many of you are experiencing right now. So you call the contractor to add some square footage. You just want to add some rooms. Add some rooms here, next to the bathroom, next to the family room. You say, it's, it's got great bones, you tell the contractor. And you want to preserve your family tradition. You don't, want to, you don't want to leave this place. You don't want to move somewhere else. You like the tradition. He comes over to inspect your house. He gives you an estimate, writes it down on a little paper, shows it to you. He's like, that, that, that makes sense. It's a little expensive, but sure, works. Comes back in a few weeks, and he begins his work. He comes over to inspect your house again, and he begins to think, and you begin to think. You, you, you can hear the, the workers hammering away. But, but as they continue, you notice it doesn't seem like they're adding space. They're not adding outside of the house. But they're, they're starting to tear down the house. And you get really confused. So you walk over to the contractor, you're confused, and you notice he's, he's holding a new contract. You're like, well, hold on, let me, let me, take, let me take this for, for a minute. Let me see what you, what you got there. You ask, why are you tearing this down? I, I, I asked you to add to it. He responds, I've got to gut this place. And you're shocked. You're like, this is not what I asked for. And I've got to build something new. This can't hold you. And so you are stunned. This is not your agreement. This is not what you thought the contractor was going to do. But he continues, the contractor. He says, because when I'm building, I'm not going to charge you for it. And it's going to last you forever. And as we near the completion of John 2, this, this is probably the stuff the Jewish priest, as, he's, as Jesus is interacting, this is probably what they think. This is not who I think the Messiah is going to be. I thought he was going to kind of help us and, and conquer for us, not restart things. And, and we so often expect, I think, Jesus too, to just like add stuff to our life. Add a room here, add a room there. You know, it's nice if you're part of my life, but you can just like add stuff to it. If you change things, like hold on. Let's figure this out. Let's, back, let's, look, let's look back at this contract. And he completely he transforms your life. He says, I'm not coming here to add stuff. I'm coming here to transform stuff. And last week, you heard about Jesus' first sign at the wedding of Cana. And if you remember, it's the inauguration of his ministry, the very first sign in the book of John. And it's exclusive to the book of John. And you heard these strong allusions. It sounds, it feels kind of like the first wedding in the Garden of Eden. 
And it's likened because of the first sign in Cana. If you remember, Cana shares the Hebrew word with the, with the Red Sea. It's, it's likened to Jesus, likened Jesus to Yahweh. Because Yahweh's first sign in the Exodus was turning water into blood. Jesus comes into Cana and turns water into wine. So he's both doing this and he's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm fully God. That's me. That's who you're dealing with. And from the divine wedding, we come to the purifying of the temple. And you'll see again, you'll see some allusions. This is, this is Jesus fulfilling, not starting something new. He's fulfilling. He's fulfilling what the first Adam should have done. He should have cleansed the temple. He should have like, no, Yahweh's presence is here. Let's take out the serpent. Let's keep sin out of here. I want to expand these borders. And that's what the last Adam does for you. And you'll see this in three points. And our, our last point is technically the conclusion. It's really the first time I've ever had two points. It's a kind of a shorter passage. The third point is our conclusion. The first is Jesus cleanses the old temple, verses 13 to 18. Remember, Jesus, how he was described in John 1? He is the fullness of God who is tabernacled among He's already described as a temple before this. You must cleanse the old to make room for the new. That's what you have to do with the temple. If there's sin in the temple, you have to cleanse it. You have to promote the new. And then point two, Jesus purifies his temple. Verses 19 to 22. So after cleansing the temple, he has to, he has to build something else. If, if that's no good, what's the new temple? What's that like? And then point three in our conclusion is entering this temple. How can you enter this temple? Is this something you can enter? What, like what, what happens when you do enter this temple? And so I hope and pray that this is clear throughout. Jesus cast out the impurity of the old, purity of, of your old and of all the old, to bring you into the purity of his new. And we'll start with point one. Jesus cleanses the old temple. And so look at verse 13 with me. It's fitting for John to signal to us, as we saw this in, in John 2, the earlier part, and we saw this in John 1, because he kind of gives you like little dates, little days to follow. Those are really helpful to follow along with. And he says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It's not yet the Passover. It's near the Passover. So they're moving into the Passover. So it's kind of like Passover preparations. So all this stuff here, it's like, it's what kind of they usually do. So remember from last week, the wedding at Cana had strong overtones from the wedding of Adam and Eve. Kind of sounded similar. Because Jesus is really kind of presented as the groom until we finally see the groom at the very end. He gives him all the stuff that the groom should have done. And it's as well as being the first sign, like the first sign of turning water to blood in Egypt before the Exodus. Now, as a small Israelite nation once celebrated their deliverance by observing and feasting on the Passover, Jesus enters the temple as the Passover draws near. It's not yet the Passover, but it's, it's coming quick. And we're not told that his disciples are with him. In verse 13, it, it says, he's coming. Verse 12, they travel to a different area. Verse 13, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. 
Because who is Jesus? How does John describe him in John 1? You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what's the Lamb of God doing? He's walking over to the Passover. What do they sacrifice on the Passover? They sacrifice lambs. We see some of these connections, we'll see what's happening. Now when he enters the temple, what what does he find? Does he find that the sacrificial system instituted under Moses is, is going well? Full swing. Things are, things are looking good. Jesus comes in and is like, yes, that's what you should be doing. The sacrifices, they should be readied. The families should be getting their feast prepared. And, and, and possibly cleansing from both the Levitical priests and also the Aaronic priests. They should be readying themselves. They should be getting ready for the sacrifices, purifying themselves. We just saw the, the stone jars that are used for purification in the previous story. That's, that's the stuff they should be using. But that's not what Jesus finds. Instead, he finds in verse 14, those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, here's the thing. That's not necessarily bad. This is the, this is the Gentile outer court. So those who are coming in here are coming in from long distances to this temple. So they probably, like, you can't, can't imagine them going, traveling miles and miles and miles with a, the big fat oxen right next to them. They're probably coming here, and this is not inherently bad. They're not coming here and seeing all this being sold. That, this is relatively normal. This is probably what they did. And now it's likely it's the outer court, like I said. And generally speaking, that's, that's not a bad sign. So our, kind of our instincts... Even though we see Jesus coming in, he's not coming in because he sees this necessarily. We'll see what he's doing. But it's because it's so close to Passover. That's the reason. It's not that they're selling stuff. It's they're selling it right on the eve of Passover when they should be cleansing. It's, it's not the fact that this is here. It's because it's next to Passover. And they're likely selling... It's, it's, it's likely it's over... We might be reading a little bit too much in the text, but some of the people I read... That, They've said this. It's, it's probably they're selling overpriced livestock. It's, it's, not, it's not unlike if you're going to a gas station the day before summer. Things are going to get a lot more expensive when you get closer to summer when you're buying gas. It's probably similar to what we have here. They're right next to the Passover, so things are probably a lot more expensive. Bulls here are used for the whole burnt offerings, lambs are used for the first Passover, one year old and they're spotless. And then doves are usually used for, if you can't afford the other two, you get a dove. And in all reality, they should be preparing for the festival. They shouldn't be selling sacrifices anymore. They should be preparing, cleansing, readying themselves. But it seems like it's, it's, they're getting as close as they can because like, we can make a lot more money. We can make more money for the temple. We can make more money for the Roman states. Kind of pad their pockets a little bit. Closer we get, the closer we can get to the Passover, the sacrifice and, and festival, with all this, we could probably make a little bit prettier dime. You can imagine your average, if you're an average Israelite walking around, so imagine yourself, average Israelite walking around. 
and wondering, as you look through kind of all your options, like, hey, what, what sacrifice can I afford? Because that's, that's what all of them are thinking. What can I do? What can I afford? Rather than preparing themselves. Rather than preparing themselves to worship Almighty Lord. They're figuring out, what can I afford? What's the best thing I can get with my money? It's, it's like this commercial, and you might have seen this too. Actually, I told my wife about this like two weeks ago. It's like this commercial I've seen a few times for the Google Pixel phone. Maybe you have it. I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on the Google Pixel. And I, I remember, if, if you remember, growing up, what does a phone do? It calls people. You can maybe, texting is like a relatively new thing as of 20 years ago. But it, you called people. That's what a phone did. You called people. But this commercial, advertising the Google Pixel, guess the one thing it promoted? Photo taking. Like, but you're a phone. And the one thing you promote is the ability, and this is like, this is everywhere. This is like, everyone wanted this phone because you can crop people out of your photos with ease. That's why you buy the phone. So for 30 seconds, I, I, I watched, I, I had to remind myself, they're selling a phone by the ability to crop out in pictures. It's, that's probably not unlike what Jesus finds in the temple. He's, they're concerned for sacrifice and not for worship. It's like, I'm here at a temple, and you're selling stuff. That's not the point of a temple. The point of the temple is to worship. And they're like, how much money can we make off our sacrifices? It's like using your phone to take pictures. I know a lot of us do, but to advertise it that way. If you think about it, it's odd. And so I can ask a question that we can, we can kind of answer for ourselves and for this church. What, what is our church known for? For you to walk into the church, you know, from your, your kids' programs, musicians, if you play music, an emotional fix, kind of a, a high, practical life tips. Is that what you find when you walk in the church? Is that, is that what we want when we walk into church? Or are we looking for the gospel? Looking for one thing the church does is proclaim the gospel. It's, it's not unlike what Jesus sees here. And so back in the text in verse 15, Jesus forms a whip of cords. I can't figure out why he does a whip of cords. It, it's, it's probably for visual effect, and it probably has something to do with Solomon, or not Solomon, Samson. I couldn't find the connection. So maybe you can find the connection on your own. And he drives the sheep and oxen, as well as the money changers and their tables. And it's significant that all these sacrificial animals are driven out. It's like, you don't need these. It's not the animal's fault. It's not like the oxen are coming in here. It's like, I'm ready to get sold. They're probably just waiting to get slaughtered. It's not their fault that the priests and the money changers are likely upcharging those who cannot bring their animals from the distance they traveled from, which would have been many, many, many days, weeks, possibly, they're traveling long distances to get here. This is also significant that he flips over the tables. Because sometimes we think these tables are relegated to the outer court, that that's relatively normal. But these tables, the word that John uses here, is only found in Exodus 25 to 40. 
If you look at the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testaments, this is what they place. The tables hold the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. They hold the showbread and they hold the lampstand. These should not be outside. They should be holding the sacrifice. And so Jesus comes into the temple and says, you're using the thing to hold the ark to sell. That's as big, like, this is, this is really bad. This is wrong. That's their proper use. And so they figure, what else can we put our kind of money on and, and whatnot? And so they say, oh, we'll put our money on this. It is eventually used in the New Testament. This is what is used for, for the deacon's table. But that's not what they knew it as before. And the word for driven out is, is also highly charged. Because Jesus, Jesus drew, drove them out of the temple. He could have used a bunch of different words, and he used drove out. It's the very same word used of Adam and Eve being driven out of Eden. After what they had done. They had just sinned against God by either adding, subtracting, changing the commandments. No, we can touch it. We can taste it. So they're driven out. Can't have sinners in the holy presence of God. Doesn't work. Have to be driven out. And it's also the same word used for Jesus' own casting outs. To temptation. Which is not in the Gospel of John. It's kind of in John 17, but it's not as explicit as the synoptics. And so what does Jesus see and what does he do? He sees impurity. He sees idolatry. He sees desecrating the temple. And he pushes it out. He drives it out. And after the creation of all things and calling of the disciples in John 1, and he's not just likened to Yahweh, he says, that's Yahweh. That's Yahweh enfleshed. That's Yahweh's second person. That's the second so that's the second person, the Son of God. The wedding at the beginning of John 2, and you see all these par- this parallels to this temple, desecration of the temple. You're supposed to be driving this out. You see, this is the stuff Adam's supposed to do. Adam's created, names the animals, gets buried to Eve, sees a serpent. What's he supposed to do? Cast that sucker out. Get sin out of here. And so see Jesus doing kind of the same stuff. After driving out everyone from the temple, he speaks to those who sell the pigeons. It's the same word used for doves in the New Testament. But sit on this. It's easy for us to kind of read through this pretty quick. Can you imagine what the priests are thinking? They're there. Imagine seeing this random dude they've never seen before. They have no idea who he is. Come to the courts of the temple and start flipping stuff. What would you think if you were a priest? Get that crazy man out of here. What's he doing in our temple? They don't know what we know. And so it's easy for us to read into a, a, a novel or the scripture and impute the same thing we talked about last week, the same knowledge we have, they're confused. This is weird. You can imagine them saying, well, you're not a priest. What are you doing? Like, well, you're doing our job. Why are you here? How dare you mess with our system? We got this place figured out. We've been ordained as priests. 
who are you? That's, you can imagine these priests kind of have these questions in mind. This temple is for worship. It's not to make a dime off of. As Jesus sure well knows, as he's the Son of God, it was instituted by Yahweh himself and printed, inscribed as a blueprint by Yahweh or by Moses or to Moses that they might worship him as the Lord has commanded. And yet, you can hear Jesus kind of saying, What are you doing? It's not how this place is instituted. What are you doing? A marketplace. That's what Jesus describes it as. A marketplace. The temple, a marketplace. Where you can buy and sell, kind of grow your wealth. What can I bring here? What can I get from here? At times, the detriment of others. That's, That's what they've made this place into. What do I get out of this? How can I gain from it? And whether verse 17 occurred at this moment, or, or kind of like verse 22, it's a reflection back on this episode. It occurred after the resurrection, verse 22, and I'm a little bit closer to thinking this is like verse 22, that it's reflection on the temple. When they look back to Jesus' ministry, because we all know how well the disciples figure out Jesus' ministry while he's ministering, they don't get it. Like, yeah, you do a lot of crazy stuff, you do a lot of miracles, but are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, I've been doing all this stuff because I'm the Son of God. And they have to ask him all over the place. So I think this is probably a reflection on his ministry. And they, they remember this. They say, Psalm 69.9 is this verse, zeal for your house will consume me. It comes from the lips of King David. If you read Psalm 69, this is sandwiched in between a lot of persecution. So his zeal for the house, his righteousness for the house, is persecuted by everybody. And it eventually leads to another persecution. And it's, it's kind of like a foreshadowing. Because Jesus hasn't been persecuted yet. It's really not on the horizon as far as we can tell in this part of Scripture. But David's afraid that he'll be handed over in Psalm 69. Be handed over to iniquity because zeal has consumed him. And it's foreshadowing of what will happen, what will happen to Jesus as we continue reading through the Gospel of John. Because this pericope, or this, like, this story, is what's used by the Jewish priests in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of the court of the Jews, to indict Jesus. This story. Because they tell them, Jesus wants to destroy your temple. That's a, that's, that and then his blasphemy of being the Son of God are the two things that get him on the cross. So this is a, this is a rather important story. Because he's a threat in their eyes. Set up your own temple, have everyone follow you, that's a big threat to them. And it's hard to catch the emotion behind these dialogues. It's easy for, again, for us to kind of read through this stuff and not see the emotion between Jesus and the priestly order. But if you had, if you had just watched, kind of like we just talked about, just watched a random person Random to them, we know who Jesus is as we read this. They haven't the foggiest idea. They see a random person rip apart your temple. Things that you've done for years and years and years. 
how do you think you'd feel towards him? You'd be ripping angry. How dare you come into our house and do this to our house? And so bring that into verse 18. Because it can seem like an innocent question, but there's no, there's no question they're furious. So they ask, probably mockingly, what do you have to say for it? What sign do you have to show us that this is true? Almost like, who are you to destroy what's within this temple and our, and our precious work? What do you have to say for yourself? They use the same language as, as John uses for Jesus' first sign. In Cana, this sign that Yahweh shows of Egypt, or to Egypt, in his glory. So Jesus is doing the same. Everything the priests know, the Mosaic institution in full swing, though it's really been turned to idolatry, Jesus comes and cleanses it. So you have to ask the question, if he cleanses it, and he starts, I mean, really ripping apart all they thought they knew, What's he going to put there instead? So he can't be left without something. There's got to be something. So leads us to point two. Jesus, Jesus purifies his temple. And Jesus' answer in verse 19 doesn't make a lot of sense when you first look at it. We talked about before. Jesus doesn't usually answer their question. He answers the question they should have asked. So when he's answering this question, imagine they should have asked the question, but he answers that. I know it's a little confusing. But in Jesus' normal operation, we're responding to the wrong question. Instead of, instead of them asking, what sign do you show us today? They should have asked, after cleansing this temple of idolatry that we've made it into, what are you going to put in place of it? That's the question they should have asked. Because it sure seems like you care about this place to destroy it and to put something new. But that's not what they asked. But he responds... Then destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. Again, without our knowledge, that's got to be an incredibly weird statement. What's the only contest they have for that? Destroy this temple. They're standing in a temple. All they can think of is, like, you're going to destroy our temple. And raise it in three days. That's why the answer took us 46 years. You think you can do this in three days? There's one of you. There's gobs of us. We can do this a lot faster than you. But Jesus is not speaking of a physical temple. The priests should know this. It's not like they're kind of out of the loop and not good scripture readers. They have the Torah memorized. They have it memorized in Hebrew better than you or I will ever have it memorized. And they have the promise to David. They know the promise to David. They know the Lord's not going to build a temple through human hands. They know that. And they miss it. Completely miss it. You hear this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glories of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John's already told you Jesus is a temple. You know that. When you come into this text, the temple has come into the old temple. And the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 by the prophet Nathan. 
In verse 5 of 2 Samuel 7, the Lord says to David, because David wants to build his house. And the Lord responds, would you build me a temple? Do you think you can house me in your house? Do you think you can build something I can lay into, I, I can dwell into? Do you think I actually, I actually dwell in a physical house? And then he answers his own question, the Lord does, I will build my temple, and you will enter this house. You're not going to build my temple, I'm going to build my temple. So when Jesus is talking about destroy this temple and I will build it, they should be thinking 2 Samuel 7. They know this. They know the scripture, and they miss it. They miss the illusion when they say, it's taken us 46 years to build this physical temple. It's just like, I'm not talking about the physical temple. I'm talking about me. I'm talking about the, the spiritual temple. So they miss it. They forget the promise. They don't see the embodied temple that is Jesus fulfilling their temple promise right in front of them. They miss the scripture. They miss Jesus. They built this temple, though, with their, with their, with their own blood with their sweat, with their tears. And now Jesus says, it's obsolete. But you spent all your precious time, so much time, it's gone. It doesn't do anything. They're probably thinking, how dare you call our work nothing? Unless we think this is just a priest problem, I think this is our problem too. This is your problem, this is my problem. Us Christians, we can ask, Lord, what can I do for you? Or, look what I've done for you. Why aren't you blessing me with a better life? Maybe a nicer house. Quieter life. Better spouse. I've, I've read my Bible every day. I've prayed every day. I've given to church every day or every week. Lord, why aren't you giving me more stuff? I've been so faithful to you. Why aren't you making my life a little easier? And those who are not Christians might, might think the same, although we, we don't put in the same words. You might think, what can I do to feel significant? Why don't I feel more significant? Maybe I need a better job, or maybe I need to divorce my spouse, marry a better spouse that fulfills me, does more for me. Maybe I need a better job. That'll make me feel better. Maybe I need a, a bigger job, a bigger platform. Maybe, maybe I'll look to this politician to set things right or, or feel like I'm part of the in crowd or the group. I need to feel something. I need to be part of something. Because we, we so often, like, like, they're, like they're doing in John 2, we look to the things we've built for our, our, our identity. We look at the things we can see in front of us, the things we've made with our hands, the things that took us so long to do. And when Jesus comes and says, that's no good, look at me. Like, but I worked so hard for this. And you say that means nothing? Because you're always going to have to do more. You're always going to have to build more. You're always going to have to buy more. You're going to have to feel more. But it's a big problem, and they're figuring this out. It's never enough. 
It does not matter how many sacrifices were brought, because they're probably all thinking, like, how many sacrifices I got to bring? Because the more sacrifices I bring to God, the better my standing is before God. The nicer sacrifice I bring, the better my standing is before God. Or how perfect the ceremony went, how crisp things went. That's not what brings you closer to God. And that's, that's what the, the Jewish priests and the, and the festival goers, that's what they really wanted from the temple. The better I can make things go, the better things go for me. Or at least the better I, th- I feel like things go for me. And the Jewish priests, they, they knew the, Testament, the Old Testament so well and its promises so well, but they miss it. It's not the physical temple they were standing in need to be purified. It needed to be destroyed. And it's not because the temple is bad. It's the same thing with the law. It's not because the law is bad. It's because it can't do anything. All it can do is just point things out, but it can't actually do something for you. And that's all the temple could do. Because you have to continually bring more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices. It needed the presence of the pure one, not only to make it pure, but to be its purity. It needed one pure one, because these sacrifices couldn't do it. And it's continual sacrifices. Think of the temple. They would have thought continual sacrifices, weekly, daily, yearly, over and over. I have to keep coming back. I have to keep doing more. And now the final sacrifice has come. So I'm not destroying you because you're bad. I'm destroying you because it's done. I've come. And with the disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, remember the cleansing of the temple in verse 22... They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, which also means, guess who also didn't get it? Disciples. Every run around Jesus doesn't get it. They might get little peaks and, and shadows here and there, but they don't get it. So if you don't get it sometimes, join, join the club. Join the group. And this Jesus who entered the temple is the temple. He's not just saying, I'm going to build a better one. He's like, I am the temple. You don't need this temple anymore. Look at me. And so are you still still looking for your purity? Are you still looking for things to be be done? I don't want to work anymore. I don't want to to try anymore. I don't want to do anymore. Because there's too much. It happens all the time. And I have to continue coming back. You may not think of it that way. But that's actually what you're searching for. How much can I bring? How much more do I have to bring? How much better do I have to bring? And you look for pure cleansing. Because that's what you need. You don't need more. You need pure. You need purity from your guilt and your shame. Your constant search to reinvent yourself. Better yourself. Do something that you might feel completely whole. The Lord speaks to you through his cleansing and says, I can make you clean. You can't do nothing. I can make you clean. They're, they're, as, they're, as they're doing more for the temple, you can, you can, hear, them, you can hear them thinking this, because you think this. I think this. You're searching for me, the Lord says. But you can't find me until I reveal myself. Reveal myself to you and change your heart that you might see me for who I really am. Because they couldn't see him. They saw him, but they really couldn't see him. 
This temple is not the place you come back to in order to continually do your duty. This is not your doing. You don't come back to continually do the stuff you're supposed to do. You come back to remember what's happened. You come back to be, remember your cleansing. You come back to remember what's been done for you. Because this temple offers complete cleansing. Complete and total cleansing. And not just cleansing, because cleansing is great. So if you're clean, that's great. But what happens when you clean your kids? They get dirty the next day. So you don't just need cleansing. You need perfect purity. You need perfect righteousness. If you believe in Jesus for your cleansing from your sins, which you had to continually make sacrifices for, that you might have his perfect righteousness, his perfect purity. You enter his temple, you don't need any more cleansing. You don't have to keep coming back for more. Because this temple, the temple of Jesus, you do come back to continually. We do come back together. We do come back together in Jesus' name. But that's not to keep up your cleanliness. That's not to keep up your purity. That's not to do anything on your own. It's to remind you of it. You have been cleansed. You've been made pure. And that's because you are part of this temple if you believe in Jesus. Nothing you can do to add to it. Nothing you do to subtract to it. Nothing you do to get more pure. Because you are pure. Because you are the temple of his body. Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind and gracious to us that through this instituted system, good as it was, it cannot cleanse us from our sins. And I know it's, it can feel good at times because we've done this, we feel this, we see this, we smell it. The sacrificial system was, was dirty, was smelly, it was visual, it was visceral. They felt it. And Lord, so often we don't feel this. But Lord, you have made us pure in your Son. You've cleansed us as he cleansed the temple. You've purified us as he purified the temple. And you've instituted this, your son as the new temple. And so we enter this temple. Because this temple will never cast us out. It will never cease its cleansing and purifying power. We are always and eternally pure. Lord, we thank you for this. All this in your son's name. Amen.